Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. For many of us who grew up in the 80s or 90s or earlier, the idea of Saudi Arabia may bring to mind images of majestic sandscapes and shimmering desert cities, and of women, their faces hidden behind veils, living under fundamentalist oppression. In fact, for many of us growing up in America, Saudi Arabia was framed as the unfortunate poster child for the oppression of women. Happily, thanks to the tireless efforts of Saudi activists, many, many changes have happened in recent years. And I want to just share a very incomplete list of some of the rights that women have gained since the year 2005. In 2005, Saudi Arabia banned forced marriages. In 2009, the first Saudi female minister was appointed to the cabinet. In 2013, Saudi Arabia allowed women to ride motorbikes and bicycles in recreational areas. Since 2013, the government has required that women hold at least 20% of seats in their consultative assembly, and that exceeds the representation of women in the United States Congress sometimes. In 2015, women were allowed to vote for the first time. In February of 2017, Saudi Arabia appointed the first woman to chair the Saudi Arabian Stock Exchange, which is the largest stock market in the Middle East. In 2017, King Salman ordered that women should be allowed access to government services such as education and health care without needing consent from a male guardian. In 2017, King Salman also issued a decree allowing women the right to drive, lifting the decades-old ban on female drivers. In October of 2017, women were allowed into sports stadiums. In January 2019, the Saudi Supreme Court issued a law requiring courts to notify women of divorce via text because guardian laws had allowed men to divorce their wives without notice prior to that. And that previous policy of divorce without any notice created confusion, and it also left many women homeless. As of August 1st, 2019, women have the right to register for divorce and marriage, apply for passports and other official documents, and then also travel abroad without their male guardian's permission. The laws also allow women to register as co-heads of households, live independently from their husbands, and to become eligible for the guardianship of minors. In 2019, Saudi Arabia issued a ban on marriages for people under the age of 18 for both sexes. In 2019, the Saudi Ministry of Defense stated that women could join the military. And in 2021, Saudi Arabia allowed single, divorced, or widowed women to live independently in a house without permission from their male guardians. In 2022, Saudi Arabia appointed the first woman as head of the Saudi Human Rights Commission. And in September 2022, the country announced that they would be sending the first Saudi woman to space in 2023 as part of the Saudi Space Commission's new space program. So, life as a woman in Saudi Arabia sounds really complicated. And I'm so excited to be joined by our guests today, Liz and Cami, who are two Americans who have lived in the kingdom for the past several years. 
they point out that their experiencing navigating Saudi patriarchy as foreign women is different than it would be if they were Saudi citizens and Muslims themselves. Their perspective is absolutely fascinating, and it illuminates all kinds of misconceptions that Westerners have from the outside looking in. So let's get to it. Liz and Cami are decades-long friends who live in Saudi Arabia. Both are pursuing degrees, Liz in global public policy and Cami in sociology, and they are both busy taking Arabic classes and trying to decide what to make for dinner. Liz loves subversive cross-stitching, thunderstorms, and lemon-flavored desserts. Cami loves reading, listening to podcasts, and cuddling with her dog. Welcome, Liz and Cami. My name is Cami, and my pronouns are she and her. And my name is Liz, and my pronouns are also she, her. And Liz and I are talking to you from where we live in Saudi Arabia, which is a very hot, sandy, culturally rich, fascinating place that is much more fun and complex than you probably think. Yes, I think people have some strong assumptions about Saudi Arabia, given what they often see or hear in the media, and I certainly did before we moved here. And living in Saudi Arabia as American women is an especially interesting experience. But before we get into it, why don't we tell you a bit about ourselves? I'll go first. I'm Cami. I was born in Tucson, Arizona, but spent most of my childhood in Washington State, Seattle area. I am number four out of eight children, six girls with two bookend brothers. So growing up, we were a traditional big Mormon family, and I never actually thought about the size of our family being the largest in our neighborhood by far until my mom and dad bought our family large white 15-passenger van. It was a party bus for sure, and I have a lot of fond memories of my childhood, and as much as I sometimes wished I was the only child, I liked being part of a, a big family. And it was from my family where I learned values like responsibility, gratitude, service, forgiveness, and other important skills like how to negotiate at the table for the last breadstick. As we will talk about more later, my family also had a profound impact on my ideas about womanhood and feminism and my personal development as a woman. The summer after high school, I moved with my family to Logan, Utah, where my dad relocated for work. And later that year, I met my husband and we dated for four months and then got married. I was 19. He was 24. Looking back, we cringe. Uh, we were so young and, and dumb and didn't know anything about life. But thankfully, we really like each other today. So it worked out. Just after getting married, we moved to Chicago and just after celebrating our first anniversary, we had our first child, not intentionally, but it happened. And then before we understood what was happening, we moved two more times, first to Indiana for my husband to attend law school where Liz and I met, and then to Wisconsin and had three boys. I had a really difficult time adjusting to one, adulthood, and two, motherhood. And coming from a conservative, traditional Mormon family, the messaging I'd received from both home and church was that my worth as a woman was tied to my role as wife and mother. It was what I was made for. 
and essentially it was my moral obligation to support my husband and it was his moral obligation as a man to be the breadwinner and provider. So we prioritized his education and career while I stayed home and raised babies. During that time, I also worked as a hairstylist, an education that my parents supported me pursuing because I could do it from home and still maintain my essential wifely duties. I liked being able to spend time with my clientele, building those friendships and having meaningful interactions with some really great people who I still think about today. And in a lot of ways, this was the place where my curiosity for people, why they do what they do and what social forces shape their lives was sparked, which has now led me to returning to school and pursuing a sociology degree. I'm Liz. I'm the oldest of four children, and I was born to two born and raised Mormon parents. And we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I grew up, broadly speaking, in the southeast of the United States, but when I was 12, my family moved to Mexico City, and I stayed there until I graduated from high school. After that, I went to our church's religious university called Brigham Young University, where I got my bachelor's degree in international studies and development. Um, Growing up, I always felt like because both of my parents were raised in the Washington, D.C. area and tended to be more politically liberal and less culturally Mormon than most people we attended church with, that somehow I was less affected by some of the more harmful aspects of belonging to a patriarchal church. I had big dreams as a teenager of studying to become a heart surgeon. I wasn't sure I ever wanted to get married, and I for sure didn't want to have kids. But after spending a few years at BYU, which is a very, very conservative and traditional university, I got married to my husband at 21, and I had abandoned my dream of becoming a surgeon. We eventually had our first child, And somewhere, and I'm still not entirely sure how this happened, but between when I graduated from high school and when I got married at 21, I came to believe that you could either have a job as a woman or a family, but not both. And that one choice was significantly more righteous or better than the other. So after five years of marriage, I quit my work from home job as a social worker, and we moved across the country for my husband to start law school. And a year after I got there, Cammie and her family moved in next door. Liz and I were next door neighbors in Notre Dame student family housing. And being so close in proximity and having the shared experience of being young stay-at-home Mormon moms with busy law school student husbands made friends becoming easy. And supporting a husband in law school while raising a child was often a lonely experience. But we we tried to keep ourselves busy with playdates, book clubs, taking care of kids and bringing husbands meals as they worked late in the school library. Liz was part of my support system, and I think that was the case with many people who were in the student community who were also away from home. And uh, when I got pregnant with my second child, Liz was training at the time to become a certified doula, and I was one of her first births. She was fantastic and through the whole experience, and she saw parts of me that I think naturally bond people together, like, for example, watching me poop on the delivery table. I would like to clarify that almost everyone poops on the delivery table. So Cammie and I were clearly close, but eventually our lives diverged. Cammie and her family moved away for a job, and then we moved away for a job and separately started our own journeys of discovering feminism and how patriarchy informs our lives. The messages told to me growing up within the church and family circles was that feminism was a sort of a bad word, like something I needed to keep my distance from because What those people were advocating for was something that would not only threaten my faith, 
but our way of life and how it was structured, or at least what our God and his prophets taught. My sole role and purpose was bigger than anything feminism seemed to make women want, or at least that is what I was taught. I, I didn't understand at the time what feminism was or what it really stood for outside of voting rights and equality in the workforce. In fact, we we had a large print document on our wall called the Proclamation to the World on the Family, which was a church statement made back in 1995 by official Mormon church leaders outlining the official church positions on the role of a family uh, in marriage and sexuality. Words from that document were reinforced at home and in church lessons, the belief that mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. And this is reinforcing gendered expectations and roles of women. For a long time, I, I was afraid to identify as a feminist, especially out loud in my heavily patriarchal religious community. I was worried about how others would perceive me if they would see me as less faithful or if I would disappoint my family or if I would disappoint God. I don't remember really when I became a feminist, but I remember being surrounded by incredibly thoughtful, smart women in a book club during our time in South Bend. Among many, I remember one book in particular that sparked something within me. It was Anita Diamond's book, The Red Tent. This was a historical novel about uh, Dina, who was the daughter of Jacob and Leah in the Bible. I don't know what it was really, but something about hearing a story about a biblical character that was a woman affected me. Through my whole life, we told stories about men, primarily. And my college education has helped me gain the language to articulate more what that means to me and how that has affected me. Once I turned that part of my brain on, it didn't turn off and I couldn't stop noticing gendered norms and expectations within my own faith community and the institutional structure that was designed in a way that kept women from participating at the same level with men in high positions of administration and authority. And this led me to a very, very long and uncomfortable process of deconstructing my faith and discovering new ideas and beliefs while also developing and broadening my feminist perspective through feminist writings and podcasts. My experience here has been an eye-opener for me that there is not one, but many feminisms that fit within particular cultures and traditions. Yeah, I think I had a very basic idea of what feminism was prior to having kids, but it was very much a vague idea of fighting for women's rights and generally more applicable abroad in countries where I perceived women to be oppressed. Like I remember writing an essay in college about what was called at the time female genital mutilation for one of my classes and just being horrified by the idea of gender-based violence. But I wouldn't say I was well-versed in how issues in feminism could and did affect my own life. But while my husband was in law school and I was bored at home and trying to navigate being a young mother to now two young kids, I was introduced to the concept of religious feminism. I had been having a much broader identity crisis after having kids. Who was I? Who was I supposed to be? Was I supposed to throw my entire self into raising my kids at the expense of my own goals and interests? Or could I somehow maintain my sense of self and still be a good mother? And so I started reading blogs written by Mormon feminists and listening to podcasts and hearing women put my own struggles with identity and power into words. And it felt so liberating and I felt so heard. And so I started the very slow and very painful process of deconstructing both my faith and how it informed my values 
as well as my identity as to what it meant to be a Mormon woman. And one silver lining of my faith deconstruction was that I became very good at understanding and sitting in cognitive dissonance. I could hold two conflicting ideas at the same time and understand that one idea being true didn't necessarily mean the other was false. I considered myself to be a nuanced liberal member of, of my faith. I didn't believe everything that was taught and frankly disagreed with several hot button issues, including the church's vocal opposition to same-sex marriage. But I believed there was good inside of it and that I could work to make things change from the inside better than I could from the outside because by maintaining my membership and participating, I was granted a certain level of legitimacy and soft power that I wouldn't have if I left. So in 2014, I started blogging for one of the Mormon feminist blogs and raising my voice about what I felt could and should change inside the church. Fast forward to February 2018. And my husband gets an email from a headhunter looking for an attorney at a company in Saudi Arabia. And since I had grown up overseas and really valued that experience, he was always keeping an eye out for overseas legal opportunities. But within minutes of receiving this email, he responded, thank you for thinking of me. And while I would be interested in an overseas position, Saudi Arabia is not the right fit for my family. Ha. And then he forwarded it to me almost as a joke because he figured there was no way that his now self-identified feminist wife would even consider moving to Saudi Arabia which in our minds was the poster child country for the oppression of women. I remember, I remember when Liz announced her move to Saudi Arabia and I thought, wow, that is really crazy. And I could never, ever do something like that. Yeah, it, it was crazy. But between my husband's work situation in Michigan, not being ideal at that particular time and a general feeling of, well, there's no harm in asking questions and looking further into it. We asked for more information and talked to some people who lived in Saudi Arabia. And then one thing kind of led to another. And after a lengthy application process, my husband was offered the job and we accepted it. I definitely still had conflicting feelings about the whole thing. Like we were told from the beginning, not only by the company itself, but also by people who worked there, that it was difficult to be a woman in Saudi Arabia. When we were applying, women still couldn't drive. I was told I wouldn't be able to legally work because of my visa status as a dependent woman. I was told I'd have to wear an abaya, which is like a loose-fitting, long-sleeved dress whenever I left his company's more Western compound. And Saudi Arabia is not exactly known to tolerate dissent or differing opinions. In fact, my agnostic sister said she might take up praying again just to try to keep her loudmouth feminist sister out of Saudi prison for shooting her mouth off when she shouldn't have. And literally everybody around me was sort of like, really? You? But for me, I was like, look, I have grown up in a patriarchal conservative church and I have made it work. I have come up with new frameworks for how to experience patriarchy without it destroying me. I have basically been training for this my whole life. And living in Saudi Arabia is like running my religious feminist marathon. And six months after Liz and her family moved to Saudi, we were talking to the same recruiter. And I remember as I was walking out of class, Steve, my husband, called me and asked what I thought about moving to Saudi Arabia. And I just laughed. And I said, there is, I mean, we are just not as brave or adventurous as the Johnsons. And for context, I had never traveled outside of the United States save one trip to Canada for a weekend. So my confidence in my ability to navigate a foreign country was nearly zero. To add to that, the only thing I knew about Saudi Arabia was what was reported in the media, which was not great. And I mean, I especially just didn't know how it would be being a woman. I had all sorts of conflicting feelings too. Of course, with the anxiety being my constant companion in life. I imagined all sorts of horrible things that could possibly happen. But also, in another way, I saw it as an opportunity for all of us to experience something unique that would stretch all of our worldviews. I had people who would say to me that they weren't sure I could handle this. 
And to be honest, I wasn't sure I could handle it either. But I've always been interested in people who live differently. So there was a curiosity aspect in there, even though I haven't traveled a lot and my social circles were still within Mormonism. I was curious to know what that life would be like, both for other people, but also for myself and for my kids. But this was also another time where I was going to have to delay my own goals to put my own dreams and my and aspirations aside to follow my husband and support his career. And at the time I was attending classes, working towards my degree, and this was something that was good for him. But for me, it just felt like a step backwards in a way. After months of going back and forth, talking to Liz and her husband, we finally came to the conclusion that why not? I, I mean, we knew that we could always make the decision to come back if we decided that we didn't like it there. And it was an opportunity that we didn't want to pass up and regret later. And we were in this phase with our kids where they were still young enough that it would be relatively easy. And I really laugh at this word now, adjustment. And it was a real adjustment for all of us in different ways. I mean, for one, I think living here has provided a new perspective on how it feels to be an outsider, a foreigner. It certainly has been a humbling experience, recognizing that in a foreign place, we are definitely the strange ones. This awareness of your foreignness can also be so uncomfortable at times when you don't want to stick out. And I say that also with full recognition that we live privileged lives here compared to other expats from other countries. And for the most part, we are treated well and are respected compared to others who face real obstacles and social barriers in Saudi society. It is hard to describe our experiences here in Saudi. Words range from wonderful and full to confusion and frustrating, all the things really, and sometimes all in the same day. And being a woman comes with another unique perspective because of all the social and institutional structures in place that shape our experiences from, you know, day-to-day activities. Yeah, I still have trouble putting the experience of living here into words. It's so many things. And like you said, it was an enormous adjustment. I thought that since I had grown up in Mexico and had traveled internationally, I would land in Saudi Arabia and be totally fine. I expected that things would be different, but I would just adjust seamlessly. But landing here for the first time, it was a lot. Nobody can prepare you for the shock of landing in Saudi Arabia. Some things you expect, but I didn't expect to see women's faces blurred out on billboards or advertisements, for example. Yeah, and I I still remember the first time I saw a woman's full face without it being blurred out on a billboard, probably six months after we got here, advertising that women could now apply to get driving licenses, and I was completely shocked. It's also crazy how quickly I got used to seeing them blurred out, and then to see one unblurred felt like a really big deal. And I still notice it when women's faces are used in advertising here because that's pretty new. Although stores will still often use a Sharpie to draw clothes on the women on packaging, like for pool floats or costumes, if they're showing a little too much skin. I will admit that it was shocking to walk through the airport for the first time after our family landed and seeing women dressed in black kneecaps. I felt so exposed with my face showing and looking like an outsider. I was wearing a dark gray maxi dress that covered my arms and my chest, but 
once I saw what all the other women were wearing, I was thinking, yeah, my dress is too tight. And I just walked to the baggage area with my arms crossed over my chest. Yeah. And in addition to just the visual shock of landing here, I couldn't perform the most basic tasks when we arrived because I was a dependent woman. Tasks that I would normally do for our family in the U.S., like setting up utilities or getting cell phone plans, were tasks that my husband had to do. (laughs) Even signing my kids up for sports or signing myself up for a community class, my husband still has to do those things for me. When I withdraw money from our local joint bank account, he gets a text saying I have withdrawn money. Even on my company ID, it specifically says dependent, which robs me of my ability to do certain things. And as somebody who has always prided herself on being capable and independent, being dependent here has been a real ego hit. And even though I have done all these things in the U.S., there is something about the air that we breathe here that makes it that makes me feel that I can't do things, ordinary things here. Even driving to the store off the camp or running errands, I feel like I can't do those things on my own. I need my husband for that. Even if I can legally do it now, it seems almost impossible to do it on my own. And it makes me feel like I truly am dependent on my husband, even even for things I know I can do and have done for a long time. There is like an added layer of being aware that if I were to be pulled over in an accident or if I get lost, would I be capable or would someone help me or would the person I interact with be okay with me as a woman? Also a woman who's, you know, not covered up, would someone uh, have a problem with that? And a lot of people don't worry about that, but that's a concern I have. Right. And it's a totally legitimate thing because there are a lot of people who, who don't take us as seriously. Like I remember when we first moved in and I was trying to get somebody to help us with repairs on the house, they wouldn't take my request until they like, quote, talk to boss. Like for anybody here, I am ma'am, but my husband is boss. And you know what? I mean, sometimes we reproduce this. We use it to our advantage sometimes. Like if I, if we get someone who knocks on our door, who wants something like when we first moved here, for example, a gardener wanted to work for us and I didn't know how things worked here. So I told him I had to ask my husband and he was like, oh yeah, yeah, no worries. I understand. And he left. And I've used this several times. I still do to my advantage because people understand that I wouldn't be able to make the decision without asking my husband and because he was the authority. And I, I really hate that I do this. No, I, I do this too. And I also hate it. But sometimes it's just the way to be able to get out of something because that's how the social norms work here. And we're sort of playing the game with the cards we've been dealt for better or worse. But we have had some feminist victories. By the time Cammy moved here, women were legally able to drive. And so it felt like for our own feminist credibility and maybe self-worth, we needed to try to get our licenses. We should be clear that since we have valid American driving licenses, it was a different process that than it is for most Saudi women. When they finally allowed women to start driving here, demands for spots in women's driving schools exploded. So there is still a significant waiting list for local women to get their licenses. Since we have valid U.S. licenses, we only needed to get paperwork attested to their validity and pass a a simple driving test. Right. And on the surface, this process is theoretically the same one that our husbands had to do when we first arrived in the kingdom. They, you know, you just make a copy of your license, you have it attested, you go take the test. And actually, they didn't even need to take a driving test. And their company organized it all for them. It was a guided process, right? Like it took our husbands, what, like a day and a half to get their licenses? 
Probably not even that, but for us as women, there were several more obstacles. I mean, we had to get our licenses not only translated and certified by the Ministry of Commerce, but we also had to pay a local lawyer to having seen the actual license. And we had to figure this all out on our own. And there was no guide to getting licensed as a dependent woman. We were following social media posts where other women would share their experiences and trying to piece together the process. And it was constantly changing and everybody was always confused. So we were just praying that somehow we would check all the boxes that we needed, even though they kept adding like additional boxes. And we also had to hope that the people we were interacting with would actually help us. Yeah. So after we got our licenses translated and attested in one place, we then had to take that attested copy down to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for another attestation. I assume saying that the lawyer who attested our translations was a real attorney. I don't know. We just needed to get lots of stickers. And then while men could also get license appointments locally, we had to take an entire day to drive to a traffic office in Riyadh who had to view our documents and make separate appointments for the driving test back in our local area. And even in Riyadh, do you, I mean, Liz, do you remember how lost we were? (laughs) We were in a government facility with military men everywhere with guns, and we didn't speak much Arabic, and we didn't know which building to go into. And I accidentally went into the men's bathroom at one point and was thought for sure I was going to be deported. I mean, it was just so nerve wracking and a mess. And and then we found the room where we needed to go eventually. But it was this tiny room with no sign on it with three women inside in this small space. I mean, it was just a small miracle that we figured it all out. Yeah. And let's not forget that going to Riyadh is not easy because from where we live, Riyadh is a four hour drive each way. And keep in mind that we are not legally supposed to be driving to any of these appointments, which theoretically means we have to have our husbands drive us which wasn't always possible because many of these offices are only open during work hours. So it otherwise meant, you know, hiring a driver to take us to each place. And that cost adds up unless you're willing to just like risk it and drive yourself. And I have no comment on that. Yeah. So anyway, we, we, once we got our appointments, we then had to go to the driving school and take our test. And before we could take the test, we had to have all our documents reviewed again And then finally, we had to present them to the only man at the driving school for his final approval. And uh, I mean, of course, and he was in this massive room with, you know, a huge desk and everything looked so official and it was extremely intimidating. Um, But he stamped our papers. Yeah. And then last step, we had to go take our driving test. And the test was not hard. I think it was driving forward making a U-turn, parallel parking, and then reversing into a parking spot, which I was actually not prepared for and not very skilled at. And there were no backup cameras in the car they tested us in. I I actually hit the curb and I was surely going to fail, but I I was just so nervous uh, to have done all this work and then finally be at this last step and just, you know, mess it up. Yeah. And we had this other friend who was with us kind of through this whole process. And when she got into the car with the woman who was testing, our friend told the woman that she was so nervous. And the instructor woman put her hand on our friend's knee and said, don't be nervous. We are not in the business of failing women. And I can't even tell that little anecdote without getting a little emotional because seriously, that felt like the first part in this entire convoluted process that wasn't in the business of trying to fail women. We had jumped through so many hoops and it always felt so precarious. Like we would miss one little thing and have to start the whole process over again. 
And we had friends who tried the same process shortly after we did and then ran into all sorts of obstacles that we didn't face. And sometimes it still feels like a miracle that we got our licenses when we did. It took a total of full full six weeks like of actively working towards it. And we're lucky because we are American women with U.S. licenses. The process was even more opaque and arduous for women from India, for example, or Brazil. And at one point we heard that it wasn't even possible for women from other certain countries who looked a certain way because their local licenses weren't considered valid for this process. Yeah, and this brings us to the interesting place of being American women here, which is a very different experience from being a Saudi woman here or a Filipino woman here or a Canadian woman here. Like our U.S. passports and our whiteness and our economic situation afford us a level of privilege that makes us our experiences here very unique to us. Like we're still very much affected by the patriarchal structures here in Saudi, but we're also afforded tremendous privileges and advantages. Like one thing we did after getting our licenses was go on an all-female road trip to see some archaeological sites that are several hours away. And it required us driving on our own and booking hotels for ourselves and trying to find clean public restrooms for women. And it felt incredibly empowering to do that kind of thing here, even though that's something that I would do without any thought or a problem in the U.S. But also it it does feel ridiculous to say that because I think it feeds the notion that this place is somehow backwards or less developed in comparison to the U.S. And I don't think that's the case. It just it makes it really difficult to talk about our lives here because I don't want to feed this stereotype of women being oppressed here, but also it's like sometimes these little victories, like taking a road trip or getting a driver's license, they feel really big in face of the structural barriers. And one thing that we have both been thinking about lately is how Saudi women are perceived and talked about. We both came to this country assuming the Saudi woman was the most oppressed woman in the whole world. But we have found these attitudes to be rooted in Orientalism, a Western lens coined by Edward Said that perceives Eastern cultures as backwards, mystical, passive, regressive, and barbaric. This reinforces a stereotype of Saudi women as a passive figure, exotic, dressed from head to toe in black without voice or passions. In reality, the situation of women here is far more varied. All of this is made increasingly more complex as Saudi society continues to liberalize. Norms are changing and Saudi women continue taking more an active role in society, even if that role is not necessarily one that would be seen as impactful in the Western sense, but aligns with their own values. Living here further emphasizes the importance of understanding that there is not just one approach to feminism, but many many feminist approaches that are unique to different cultures and unique historical contexts. Yeah, obviously we cannot speak to the experience of Saudi women here because we're not Saudi women, but there's not even a singular Saudi woman experience to be told. The experiences of women here are multifaceted and extremely complex. But even for me as an American, I'm just trying to navigate my life here. feels like I'm constantly doing this weird dance with patriarchy. Like when I leave our compound, which was originally designed to keep kind of Westerners and their influence separate and outside of Saudi, but is now much more integrated into the local community in the last 10 to 15 years. But when I leave, the decision of what I wear off camp is fraught to me. Up until three and a half years ago, there were actual laws about how women had to dress in public that included wearing that abaya, which again is the loose fitting dress that is long sleeved and goes down to the ankles. And there were actually religious police who had the authority to enforce this. And your abaya had to be long enough to cover your ankles and loose enough that you weren't showing any of your shape. And the religious police could issue citations or bar you from entering places like the mall or a restaurant if you were in compliance. 
But now the religious police are gone and the only rule is to dress modestly off camp. But there are no real guidelines for what that means. So like what what does that mean for me? The abaya is definitely the safest choice, culturally speaking. That's most commonly worn by local women. But also it is approximately 1,200 degrees here in the summer. And so wearing a black dress that covers my entire body isn't exactly appealing sometimes. And also sometimes it does feel a little suffocating. Like it's kind of emblematic of how difficult it is to live here. Like sometimes I feel like I'm literally wearing the patriarchy when I wear an abaya. And there are ways to make the abaya less hot, like maybe wearing less clothing underneath it. But even inside the camp, there are people who come from uh, you know all over the world. And many of them are coming from other cultures that value the expression of modesty. And plus there's also Saudi families on camp. So even on camp, when I'm in my exercise clothes, for example, and I go on a run or a walk with my dog, I am conscious of my body. Uh, like if I'm wearing something too tight or too revealing or whose house am I going to be walking past? I, I definitely think about my clothing more than I did in the U.S. And But I mean, there's some things I also like about the abaya. Like if I'm wearing something really frumpy that day, I can just put on a, a bio over my, my sweatpants and I'm covered up and appropriately dressed. And there, I mean, I mean, there are just some really gorgeous abayas too, uh, ways women express themselves and their culture through the abaya. Yeah, I do admit to going to more than one fancy restaurant in my pajamas with my abaya over them. And it is the best. I love wearing my pajamas out to dinner. And here, it's most common for women to wear a black abaya with a niqab, which is the veil that covers the nose and the mouth. So only the eyes are showing. And this is something that sets Saudis apart from other cultures in a way. It's something unique here and unique to how they perform gender here that is distinct to their culture and their identity. And there's such an obsession about women's clothes here. And it's the first thing that people ask me about living here. They want to know if I have to cover my hair, which I don't. And actually covering hair here is almost a statement of religious significance. Like it is an expression of not just modesty, but also of faith. So it would almost be inappropriate from my perspective, since I am not Muslim. Even in our own religious community, Mormonism, there is an obsession with what women wear. And it's something I've had to deal with my whole life. A woman's clothing isn't just clothing, it has moral value to it. It's something, it's almost like people can tell your values from how you dress and your commitment to your faith shows through in how you dress. But even here off camp, there is something about wearing a, a nabaya off camp that maybe gives some credibility. And they see me as, you know, wearing a nabaya. And, and that says something about me that I am willing to conform to the cultural expectations here. Yeah, I think about that a lot because there are times when I will go off camp in pants and a shirt and a long sweater that covers my bum, which is definitely meeting all of the criteria of dressing modestly because I'm covered in loose clothing to my wrists and my ankles. But it's definitely not the norm here. And again, it's a dance because how do I navigate wanting to feel authentic to myself and my values and what I want to wear as an expression of myself against the desire to be respectful of the culture here and not wanting to feel like I'm making some sort of statement that could feel like a value judgment on some other woman's clothes. Like if I go out in jeans, am I communicating that I think the abaya is oppressive or am I just saying that I felt like wearing jeans that day. It's something that I think about a lot and it's something I will do in certain spaces and not others. Like if I'm going out to lunch with other Western girlfriends and we're going to a cafe or 
somewhere that's known for being a hotspot for Westerners or generally more progressive, then I'm more likely to wear jeans and a sweater. But if I'm going into the souk or near a mosque, I'm definitely going to wear an abaya. Even the abaya feels like a political statement. I was reading an article about when the Taliban were overthrown in Afghanistan in 2001. All those people were expecting women to take off the burqa, uh, but they didn't. Some didn't. And for those women, wearing the burqa was an expression of femininity and also an expression of their community that showed a set of shared values. Yeah. And also assuming that women would take off their burqas implies that women weren't choosing it to begin with. The expectation that women would change their dress when the rules change seems to assume that these women aren't active agents in their own lives who make their own choices. And that feels pretty paternalistic and colonialist. There's a huge conflation with how Muslim women veil themselves in an assumed lack of agency that is so problematic. Like, I think that if you asked Mormon women, for example, whether their religious undergarments are proof of their oppression and a lack of agency, they would be incredibly insulted. For them, wearing their religious clothing is a choice that they've made to signify a degree of religious devotion, belief, and commitment. So why do we assume it's not the same for Muslim women? Yeah, why? I mean, why do we assume Muslim women are inherently submissive? There is so much talk about what Muslim women wear whether it's the hijab or the niqab or the burqa or whatever, as though Muslim women aren't making these choices or aren't active agents in their own lives. But you really don't hear people making the same critique when Western women are ordering their salads with the dressing on the side, for example, or excessively exercising or getting plastic surgery to fit an unrealistic body standard that makes them more acceptable to Western patriarchal norms. Like even here, at least for me, I definitely had a superiority complex when I got here. And I hate to admit that, but I felt like these women would want what I have. And it definitely feels arrogant to say now. And I I hate that I thought that. Yeah, it's almost like if these women were liberated, they would look and act and dress more like me, <laughs> which is so arrogant. And I hate that I've ever thought that way, but it's definitely something I have felt. Living here has made me realize that being feminist or liberated does not always look like being American. And that's what justified colonialism, too. It's this view that these other people are backwards and we are free and modern and you want what we have. And so it becomes this takeover and erasure of culture. I think it's a little bit inherent to being American. The belief that ours is the best way and the right way. And it's all part of you know, it's all part of neoliberalism. Like we will come and open your markets and progress will come and you will be so grateful. But that has only worked out for a select few and the results have been uneven at best. Yet we are still perpetuating this belief that our way is the best way. Yeah. And meanwhile, American women, like you were saying, are submissive in their own way. Like we both recently listened to a podcast with Manon Garcia, who just wrote a book we want to read called We Are Not Born Submissive. And she talks about how women everywhere in every culture are being submissive to patriarchal norms in their societies. Yes. Uh, like in the U.S., we wear makeup and we remove our body hair and carefully calculate our assertiveness so that we come off as strong, but not too strong and attractive, but not too attractive so we can be taken seriously. Or like even with sex, the way we think about sex or how media perpetuates this idea of the act of sex ending in you know, at male orgasm or with little or no thought of the woman's experience. But even with all of that, we believe 
that our American submissiveness is the best form of submissiveness, as though there's a hierarchy and ours is still at the top, but it's not. Yeah, because we still have this total white savior complex that we need to save these brown women from the brown men who oppress them and that we as white women know what's best for them. And I I love to wear makeup. I do. I enjoy doing my makeup and dressing up sometimes, but I mean, why do I like these things? I It makes sense because growing up, there was a reward for looking pretty. And so much of that shaped my preference for how I like to dress or put on makeup or whether I wear makeup regularly. And I don't know how much of those preferences are because I want to do those things or because I benefit from doing those things. There are social rewards for looking a certain way for sure. And even, you know, even the things we do, the activities we choose to do, I'm thinking about when I took up Taekwondo for a couple of years, which is something that seems more masculine to do as opposed to doing ballet, which is perceived as less cool and more feminine only for women. Yeah. And how do any of us know why we do things? Like, do we actually prefer them and they align with our values or are we doing it because of the social rewards we get for conforming with patriarchy? And, and is that bad? Like, why are we sometimes ashamed of doing things that benefit us? Like, I truthfully hate shaving my legs, but also I don't want to be that lady at Target with hairy legs that gets whispered about in the checkout line. But also sometimes I do like the way that smooth hairless legs feel. So like, why, why is this so fraught? Why is it so hard to be a woman sometimes? <laughs> but this is, this is what the gender binary does. Both men and women are conforming to things that don't make sense. Like men and women are both hairy, but there's a social benefit for women to shave their legs and armpits. And men do this too. They hit the gym and do certain workouts, try to mold their bodies to look what our culture has decided what men should look like. Never mind that our biology is not so binary in real life and that we all have different bodies and they are fine as they are. And there's actually a lot of overlap between women and men. Like, yes, the average woman is shorter than the man, but there are a lot of women who are taller than a lot of men. But many tall women feel disadvantaged for having a body type that is outside the desired norm. Yeah. And in some ways, I can see how women here in Saudi might feel like they are at an advantage because they're not having to perform gender so obviously in public. Like there is a certain amount of anonymity of wearing an abaya and or a niqab that I truthfully sometimes envy. I would like to be stared at less in public, honestly, but between my pale skin and my four kids, I'm sort of a walking circus. But I think women here are just performing femininity differently than we do in the U.S. And I think the men perform masculinity differently here, too. Like, we know a Saudi man who wears very Western dress into the office, like slacks and a dress shirt. But when he needs to go into a government office, he will wear the traditional formal dress of a Saudi man, which is a crisp white thobe, which is like a long white dress, kind of, with a white or red and white printed headdress. And so patriarchy just sort of slots us all into these roles that we need to conform to and perform for certain benefits. And it's about distinction too, right? The gender binary is about distinguishing one group from another, and there are different consequences for deviating from the gendered norms. And here in Saudi Arabia, that distinction is very pronounced. Like when my husband went to the dentist, people thought it was so odd that he was fine having a female dentist working on his teeth. And they asked us over and over again if he was fine with a female dentist. But it just goes to show that gender is really a defining part of life here. It's something that influences what you do and how you do things and what spaces you can participate in. Like I just recently discovered that there is an all-female boxing gym here in town. 
and all public exercise spaces for women are relatively new here, but there is a boxing gym where women can go and train without the fear of the male gaze or having the expectation of covering up because it's only women. And they had loud music and they weren't speaking quietly and they were all grunting and sweating and working out. And it felt like a revolutionary space because women could go into the space and move their bodies how they wanted and they could be loud and strong and and could explore what their bodies could do without the constraints of gendered expectations. Yeah, and I think some people would still find it like backwards or oppressive that women aren't able to work out in the same space as men, that they have their own space to work out. But I also think that's very much a Western lens on this whole thing. And we, again, have to stop assuming that any feminist act is going to look like Western white feminism. I think it can be hard for our white uh, Western brains to conceptualize what feminism would be like here. If anything, I I think that would be for Saudi women to decide because it's their country and their, you know, their values. And there's a branch of Islamic feminism that aligns with Islamic values, which values complementarianism, where essentially women and men are equal, but operate in separate spheres with different roles and responsibilities. And it's hard for my brain not to see that as bad. But I also know that there are many ways for women to feel empowered and to feel like they have influence and voice. And that's what living here has done for me and for us. It's that there's not one best kind of feminism. There are many feminisms and with varying cultures and definitions and priorities. And mine is not the best one. Mine is going to value different things because of how I was raised. Yeah. I once heard the phrase hard on systems, soft on people. And that resonates with me in a lot of ways because women everywhere are just trying to do their best to navigate this sticky mess of a world with kind of whatever cards they've been dealt. And so what might feel like an empowering or liberating act for one woman is going to be different for others. I think Manon Garcia said in that podcast we listened to that you can't badass your way out of patriarchy. Like there's no amount of woke or correct or feminist choices that is going to free a woman from a system of patriarchy that we all exist in. But what we can do is look at the ways that we are constrained by our own culture and cultural values and examine the ways we are submissive to patriarchy and try to reform the system. And she also said patriarchy is like a hydra. It has many faces and that it looks different in different spaces. And there will be unique challenges in each person's life. But when we realize that we are trying to take on a system rather than judging who is more oppressed than the other, I think we do better in our feminism. And that's what patriarchy does. It pits women against other women. It's like a whole hierarchy with women under men and certain types of men under each other with a hierarchy of masculinity. And within women, there's a hierarchy there too. Patriarchy rewards women who conform and who uphold it and who try to keep other women in their place. And this ties back into that concept of submission that within the hierarchy, white or Western women being the right kind of submissive women and belittling other women is a form of upholding patriarchy. And this is where Orientalism comes back into because it keeps people in a fixed state. Um, It doesn't allow for people to progress. Like when we see Saudi women, the way she dresses and the way she talks and performs her gender, we don't see her as fully human we immediately place her on the hierarchy and don't interrogate further. We assume she is really religious, a backwards person without her own unique experience or thoughts or goals or aspirations. We don't really see 
anything much other than her clothing. And in an effort not to objectify her, we continue to objectify her and assume she's nothing but a submissive woman. Yeah, so long story short, we all need to do better and examine our biases and stop being so damn judgy about everything. Agreed. If we really want to help women, we need to look in the mirror and before we cast judgment, we maybe need to question why we're making those judgments and recognize, like Liz said, our own conditioning. Yeah, I do think structurally we can look at our own complicity in certain things, which is obviously incredibly uncomfortable, both because we don't like to think that we contribute to harm, but also because we often feel powerless to change it. But I think that as Western women, we could think about, for example, how our habits of excess consumerism affect women globally, or how our eating habits and consumption contribute to climate change. I do think from my personal perspective, we need to consider how our elected officials have made decisions in international foreign policy that have been detrimental across the globe, but perceived to be in the U.S.'s best interest. And also the media, like in movies or shows or news articles or media that perpetuates this orientalist perspective of the U.S. being enlightened and other parts of the world being backward, just language that is used to, to other another group of people. Like you'll see those tropes of the terrorists of the Middle East or the Arab woman who needs saving the way we talk about Middle Eastern culture, like when I went back to the U.S., I got all sorts of questions like, why on earth am I living in the place like this? Or are you safe there? Which is funny because I feel I have felt very safe here or comments that suggest that people here are stinky or harsh. It doesn't allow for the full human story and it doesn't see this world as anything other than a a barbaric, backwards, and stinky place. Yeah, and just to set that record straight, people do not smell here. There is a strong culture of smelling good, and people here are very kind and very hospitable, and yeah, I, I also feel extremely safe here. And we need to also recognize that our world is incredibly interconnected, and the way we talk about each other matters. And I think my hope is for us to listen to women's stories And my hope is that as things open up after the pandemic, we can not only listen to women's stories, but also value them and take women at their word, like believe women when they say they feel empowered, when they put on the niqab or the hijab, because some women do and some don't. And some have very complicated, nuanced feelings about it all. Yeah, because when we allow for multiple stories and multiple ways of being a woman and being a liberated woman... That's how we escape those narrow boxes the patriarchy keeps putting us in. I like that. And I think that is it. It's recognizing that there are multiple feminisms and multiple ways to push against patriarchy in its many forms. Yeah, and I have hope. Uh, strangely, living in Saudi Arabia has made me more optimistic for women around the world, not less, because I see the many ways that women are exerting their agency and taking more control over their lives and their choices and broadening their experiences. Same. And I hope our stories help. We're so grateful to Liz and Cammie for sharing all of these stories and giving us a unique peek into a society that many of us have never had access to. It's so true that we are often too quick to judge others, and we assume that all feminism must look like white Western feminism. But spoiler alert, for season three, white Western feminism is not the center of the universe, and we have a lot to learn from people all over the world. Women everywhere are finding our own paths towards liberation, and it is high time that we stopped unproductive arguments over who is more oppressed. 
it's time for us to take that energy to harness all of our unique feminisms and forge ahead as we deconstruct patriarchal systems worldwide. To quote Saudi Arabia's very first female ambassador, Princess Rima bint Bandar al-Saud, if you stand still, you give them the power to push you down. But if you keep walking, they have to follow you. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Alabest for our social media. And thank you, listeners, for your open minds, your fearless hearts, and for joining us on this global journey toward more understanding. I hope you'll join us again next week when a courageous anonymous contributor will share her own personal story about domestic abuse and will teach us critical information on abuse that everyone needs to know. Make sure you don't miss this powerful episode next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.